0: SECTION 5 OF THE LETTERS OF A POST-IMPRESSIONIST This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Cooper Leith THE LETTERS OF A POST-IMPRESSIONIST By Vincent van Gogh Translated by Anthony Mario Ludovici Section 5. Preface and Letters to His Brother, Part 1. Vincent van Gogh was born in 1853 at Grootsundert, a village in the province of North Brabant in Holland, and was the son of a clergyman. Like his two uncles, he was destined to be an art dealer and from the time when he was finished his education until his twenty-third year, he worked for the firm of Goupil at The Hague in London and in Paris. He left Paris to return to England, where for a short time he was engaged as a schoolmaster in the country. But this did not satisfy him either, and he now wished to study theology at Amsterdam. When, however, he discovered that these studies also failed to give him precisely what he was seeking, he left for Belgium, where he went among the miners as an evangelist. There, among the coal mines, he began to draw. After going to Brussels, he returned in 1881 to his home, where he began to pursue independent studies until he moved to The Hague, and for the first time entered into relations with other painters. In 1883, he went into the province of Drenthe and very shortly afterwards, back again to Brambritt, where he worked strenuously until 1885. The things he drew and painted there, in Zundort, were already stamped with an exceedingly strong personal character, though they are very different from the works belonging to his later French period. In 1885 he attended the Academy of Antwerp for a few months and in the spring of 1886 we find him in Paris, where thanks to his brother Theodore Van Gogh, an art dealer with exceptionally good taste, he became acquainted with the art of the Impressionist school, and entered into personal relations with one or two of its exponents. Very soon after this he travelled southward, and worked first at Arleaux and later at Saint-Rémy, in the works of this period he approached much more closely to the modern french school than to the art of his native land the remainder of his life was spent in a hospital for diseases of the nerves at auvers sur where he died in 1890 his art was appreciated during his life only by very few and it is but within recent years that it has found admirers who in many cases have been most ardently enthusiastic. Of the following letters, some were addressed to his brother, and the remainder to his friend E. Bernard. Letters to His Brother Dear Brother, you must not take it amiss if I write to you again so soon. I do so only in order to tell you how extraordinarily happy painting makes me feel. Last Sunday I began something which I had had in mind for many a day. It is the view of a flat green meadow dotted with haycocks. A cinder path running alongside of a ditch crosses it diagonally, and on the horizon, in the middle of the picture, there stands the sun the whole thing is a blend of color and tone a vibration of the whole scale of colors in the air first of all there is a mauve tinted mist through which the sun peers half concealed by a dark violet bank of clouds with a thin brilliant red lining the sun contains some vermilion and above it there is a strip of yellow Which shades into green, and higher up into a bluish tint that becomes the most delicate azure. Here and there I have put in a light purple or gray cloud, gilded with the sun's livery. The ground is a strong carpet like texture of green, gray, and brown, full of light and shade and life. The water In the ditch, sparkles on the clay soil. It is in the style of one of emile Breton's paintings. I have also painted a large stretch of dunes. I put the color on thick and treated it broadly. I feel quite certain that on looking at these two pictures, no one will ever believe that they are the first studies I have ever painted. Truth to tell, i am surprised myself i thought my first things would be worthless but even at the risk of singing my own praises i must say that they really are not at all bad and that is what surprises me so much i believe the reason of it is that before i began to paint i made such a long and careful study of drawing and perspective I can now sketch a thing as I see it. Now, however, since I have bought my brushes and painting materials, I have slaved so hard that I am dead tired. Seven color studies straight off, I literally cannot stand, and yet I can neither forsake my work nor take a rest what i also wanted to say is that when i am painting things present themselves to me in color which formerly i never used to see things full of breadth and figure all this looks as if i were already satisfied with my own work but i feel just the contrary up to the present, however, I have progressed to the extent that when anything in nature happens to strike me, I have more means at my command than I had formerly for expressing that thing with force. Nor do I think that it would matter much if my health played me a nasty trick. As far as I am aware, they are not the worst painters who from time to time feel as if they can do no work for a week or two for their compulsory idleness is probably due chiefly to the fact that they are the very ones who as millet says ils montaient leur peu. that does not matter and no one should pay any heed to such lapses for a while you are utterly exhausted but soon get right again and then at least you are the richer for having garnered a number of studies as The peasant garners a load of hay, but for the moment I am not yet contemplating a rest. I know it is late, but I really must write you a few lines. You are not here, and I miss you, though I feel as if we were not so very far from each other. I have just decided to pay no further heed to my indisposition, or rather all that is left of it. Enough time has been lost, and I must not neglect my work. Therefore, whether I am well or not, I shall again draw regularly from morn till night. I do not want anybody to be able again to say of my work, Ah, those are all old drawings. In my opinion... My hands have grown too delicate, but what can I do? I shall go out again, even if it cost me a good deal, for my chief concern is that I should not neglect my work any longer. Art is jealous. She will not allow illness to take precedence of her. And I give in to her. Men like myself, really have no right to be ill, but you must understand what my attitude is to art. In order to attain real art, one must work both hard and long. The thing I have set my mind upon, as the goal of all my efforts, is devilish difficult and yet I do not think that I am aiming too high. I will make drawings that will amaze some people. In short, I will bring it to such a pitch that they will say of my work, the man feels deeply, and he is subtle withal." In spite of my so-called coarseness, do you understand? Maybe precisely on that account, present it sounds presumptuous to speak in this way, but it is for this very reason that I wish to put vigor into my work. For what am I in the eyes of most people? A non-entity, or an oddity, or a disagreeable man, someone who neither has nor ever ever will have any place in society, in short, something less than the least. Well, granting that this is so, I should like to show by my work what the heart of such a non-entity, of such an insignificant man conceals. This is my ambition, which for all that is the outcome more of love than of resentment, more of a feeling of peaceful serenity than of passion, and even though I often have to contend with all kinds of difficulties, yet I feel within me a calm, pure harmony and music. Art requires resolute and unremitting industry, as well as incessant observation. By resolute industry, I mean, in the first place, constant industry, as also the power of maintaining one's own point of view against the assertions of others. Latterly, I have had precious little intercourse with other painters, and have not felt any the worse for it, one should not pay so much heed to the teaching of painters as to the teaching of nature. I can understand better now than I did six months ago that Mauve should have been able to say, "Do not speak to me about to pray, speak to me rather about the edge of your ditch or." Things of that sort. It certainly sounds strange, but it is absolutely right. A feeling for things in themselves, for reality, is much more important than a sense of the pictorial. It is more fruitful and animating. In regard to the difference between ancient and modern art, I should like to say that I think modern painters are perhaps greater thinkers. Rembrandt and Rosedale seem to us great and sublime, just as they did to their contemporaries. But there is something more personal and more intimate in the modern painter, which makes a stronger appeal to us. I made another study of the little child's cradle today, and have put in color here and there. I trust, I may yet be able to draw the little cradle a hundred times over resolutely. In order to make studies out of doors, and to paint a small sketch, a very strongly developed feeling for form is a prerequisite, and this feeling is equally necessary for the subsequent further elaboration of one's work. In my opinion, however, this is not acquired automatically, but chiefly through observation. And furthermore, through strenuously working and seeking, a study of anatomy and perspective is undoubtedly necessary as well. At my side there hangs a landscape study by Rolf's, a pen and ink drawing. I cannot describe the full expressiveness of its simple silhouette, for everything depends upon that. Another and even more striking example is the large wood engraving of Millet's Berger, which I saw at your place last year, and of which I still have the most vivid recollection. Well, there are also Ostads and Braunbruchels, small pen-and-ink drawings, for instance. I have once more tackled the old Pollard Willow, and I believe that it is the best of my watercolors. It is a dark landscape. My desire was to paint it in such a way The spectator must read and sympathize with the thoughts of the signal man with his red flag, who seems to say, Oh, what a gloomy day it is! I am deriving great pleasure from my work just now, although from time to time I feel the after effects of my illness somewhat severely. As to the market value of my pictures, I should be very much surprised if, in time, they did not sell as well as other people's. Whether this happens directly or later on does not matter to me. But to work faithfully and earnestly from nature is, to my mind, a safe and sure road, which must lead to one's goal. Sooner or later, a love of nature always meets with response from people interested in art. Therefore, it is the painter's duty to become absorbed in nature, to exercise all his intelligence and put all his feelings into his work, so that it may be comprehensible to others. But to work with a view to sell is, in my opinion, not the proper way neither should we consider the taste of the art lover the great painters never did so for the sympathy which sooner or later rewarded their efforts they had to thank only their own honesty that is all i know about it and i do not believe that i require to know any more to work in order to find people who will appreciate one and in order to kindle love in them is a very different thing and naturally a very right one, too. But nothing of the nature of a speculation should be attempted, for this might turn out wrong, and then much time would have been spent in vain. Among the watercolors I have just painted you will find many things that ought to be eliminated, but that will come in time. But please understand me— I have not the remotest idea of abiding by a system or anything of the sort. Now, farewell. And believe me that I often have a hearty laugh at the thought that people should reproach me with certain absurdities and iniquities which have never so much as entered my head. For what am I but a friend of nature, of study? work, and, above all, of man. Dear Theo, A day or two ago I paid another visit to Shevenigan, and, in the evening, had the pleasure of seeing a fishing-smack enter the harbor. Near the monument there is a wooden hut, on which stood a man who was waiting. As soon as the smack sailed into view. This man appeared with a large blue flag, and was followed by a number of little children who did not reach his knees. Apparently, it was a great joy for them to stand near the man with the flag. They seemed to think that their presence contributed largely to the successful entry of the fishing smack. A few minutes after the man had waved his flag, another man came along on an old horse who was to heave in the cable men and women and mothers with their children now joined the little group in order to welcome the vessel as soon as the boat had drawn sufficiently near the man on horseback entered the water and soon returned with the anchor then the boatmen were carried ashore on the shoulders of men wearing jack-boots and happy cries of welcome greeted each new arrival When they were all assembled on land, the whole party walked to their homes like a flock of sheep, or a caravan led by the man on the camel, I mean on the horse, who soared above the little crowd like a huge shadow. I naturally made the most frantic efforts to sketch the various incidents. I also painted a little, especially the small group, of which I give you a thumbnail sketch herewith. From the accompanying drawing, you will be able to tell what I am endeavouring to do. That is, to represent groups of people pursuing this or that occupation. But how hard it is to make things look busy and alive, and to make the figures take their place and yet stand out from one another. It is a difficult thing to render the swaying of the crowd. and a group of figures of which some are head and shoulders above the rest, though they all form a whole when seen from above. Whereas the legs of the nearest figure stand out distinctly in the foreground, the coats and trousers behind and above form a most bewildering muddle, in which, however, there is plenty of drawing, and then Right and left, according to the point of vision, there is the further expansion or foreshortening of the sides. Every kind of scene and figure suggests a good composition to me. A market, the arrival of a boat, a group of men outside a soup-kitchen, the crowds wandering and gossiping in the streets on the same principle as a flock of sheep and it is all a matter of light and shade and perspective end of section 5 recording by cooper lee